Before I open up First uh, Peter 2, we came off of a great weekend with our elders this uh, last few days, Friday and Saturday, had a great retreat. We just, I hope you know we have some unbelievable godly men who are a part of uh, providing leadership to this church, and as you see them, encourage them. They gave up all day Saturday, Friday evening, uh, they're here this morning, and uh, we just had a marvelous time seeking the Lord. You got to hear a report about how things are going at Fishers. They're at multiple services now. We just installed two elders along with Chris Beals. Last Sunday, they were 550 people. I mean, it's just, they got three, two uh, uh, bunch of property they're going to build a building on. I mean, it's just, there's so much I'm stumbling over. It's just unbelievable. I just, I, my heart is so full and so grateful for what the Lord's doing. As well, we received a, um, a recommendation from a team that studied the uh, Castleton uh, property, the former chapel, and uh, the elders uh, approved a motion to be brought back to use the congregation in the February congregational meeting to launch a third campus in the Castleton area sometime in 2017. We'll have more details on that for you and how we're thinking about that, how we're praying, but some of you in this room need to think about uh, going and helping along with about 100 people uh, to get that movement rolling and how we can reach the uh, uh, area of Castleton and use strategic relationships for uh, the gospel. So couldn't be happier, so grateful, and it's wonderful to be able to be together. So grab your Bibles, let's go over to First Peter chapter 2, if you're not there already. Today we're talking about how to honor God through earthly authority. If you were to drop a microphone into a playground, into a classroom, maybe even into one of our Sunday school rooms, with a bunch of children, no doubt, if you listened long enough, you would hear a statement like this. Well, yeah, you're not my boss. <laughs> or you'd hear, that's not fair. Cries of protest regarding fairness and statements regarding, well, yeah, you're not my boss. Those are very common things that children say often. I'm sure if you're a parent, how many times have you heard your kids come running to you with some sort of of statement regarding the unfairness of some situation. But here's the thing about that. The statement, you're not my boss, and it's so unfair, that, it's common to hear children say that, but I'd suggest to you that those statements aren't just childish statements. Those are actually human statements. See, what happens, I think the older we get, the more we realize that it's, it's not culturally appropriate to say to somebody, yeah, you're not my boss. If you're a husband and you're traveling home today and your wife gives you a point of suggestion in your life. You, you ought not look at her and say, hey, you're not my boss, right? That's, that's not a great thing to say. No, what happens is that over time, we, we find adult ways to nuance that. We find ways to, to put it in emails that are just enough to be just a tad bit rebellious, but also a level of plausible deniability of, no, that's not what I meant. We have things of unfairness that happen to us and find different adult-oriented ways to try and protest how unfair this situation is. And so I, I would suggest to you that the issue of authority and the issue of fairness are not issues that just relate to children. In fact, I think they're part of the cultural air that we breathe. So the question then is, so how does the gospel speak into these particular areas? How do, in 1 Peter, how do Christian exiles think and live in regards to these categories of authority and fairness? In, in your life, how do you think, if you're a follower of Jesus, how do you think about the government? How do you think about local government? How do you, how do you think about um, 
fairness at your place of employment? How do you think about how you're treated and how other people are treated? You know, I would suggest to you that when it comes to both the government and how you respond at work, those are two really good tests of what you think about authority and what you think about fairness. And I'm also gonna suggest that they also relate to what you think about the gospel, how you think about the role of God in the world. How you respond to the government and how you respond to your employer are two of the most practical tests for your and my view of authority and fairness. Drop a microphone into the staff break room. Drop a microphone into your car on the way home. Drop a microphone into the dinner discussion. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a number of us who would have to acknowledge, yeah, there's little bits of authority problems that show up in how I talk. There's unfairness in terms of what I'm concerned about that's around me. And what what Peter is doing in 1 Peter 2 is he's attempting to help Christian exiles know how to live in light of who they are in Christ. He's argued that being a follower of Jesus means that you become an exile. You, you, You don't move, but the culture moves. That your convictions cause you to look around and go, man, I'm different. And you feel it. And what Peter has attempted to show us is that being in exile affects how you think about your identity, how you look at your future, where you're putting your hope for your future inheritance. It, it relates to how we treat one another in the church, and as you heard last week, how we wage war against sin. Peter has talked about having a heavenly inheritance. A few messages ago, we heard him tell us that we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. But what were to happen if you took that mindset too far? What were to happen if you went around in life and said, Christ is my king. I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't have to listen to what the government says. I don't have to follow these laws. They're man-made laws. What would happen if you were to over-apply this, this beautiful identity of, of, of Christianity and then suddenly this exile mindset actually begins to foment rebellion or anarchy? So what, what Peter's attempting to do is to show us the beauties of who we are in Christ and then also to show us how this is to be contextualized. You see, if you have a mindset that you have a different identity, sometimes it can affect how you respond to the most basic dynamics of teams and culture. For instance, in years past we've had um, coaches that have been part of our church, part of the Colts organization, and I remember talking to one of them just about the difference between high school, college, and professional coaching. And one of the coaches made this observation. He said, you know, it's really interesting is that when a a college player moves into the NFL and they become maybe a higher draft choice, they come in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and coaching someone in college is really different than coaching someone in NFL because sometimes they come in with a, a bit of a, I mean, the gift to this team. So what happens if you walk around culture with this sense of, look, I'm, I'm part of a holy nation. I'm a part of the royal priesthood. Someone could think that they're above obedience. They're above submission. They're above following the rules. 
And you can imagine if we walk around saying, Christ is our king and we are God's nation. And in Peter's context, if they started saying, Rome's not our home and Caesar is not our ruler and Roman laws don't apply to us, you could begin to think that those in government would look at Christianity and go, hmm, that's actually a threat. In fact, one of the reasons John Calvin wrote the Institutes was to help King Francis of France realize that he ought not fear the Protestant Reformation. It's gonna make their culture better, not worse. So what this text does is it speaks to how being a Christian exile doesn't undermine culture at all, but rather being a Christian exile serves to glorify God in the midst of that culture. Being an exile doesn't make you a rebel. It makes you respectful. It makes you a servant leader. And what happens is that the gospel creates Christian exiles who glorify God in how they respond to authority. So let me unpack this in two ways and then make some some summary applications at the end in regards to how do we think about the government and how do we think about our employers. First, government. Here's what Peter says. He essentially says, be obedient to every authority even if it is humanly designed. In verses 13 to 17, Peter addresses how exiles are supposed to think and how they're supposed to respond to the government. How how should exiles who are part of a heavenly kingdom, whose citizenship is in heaven, who serve a resurrected king, how are they to think and live while they're under the authority of sinful, human, limited earthly rulers? Well, the answer is we're to be subject to them. The word subject in other translations is rendered submissive. We need to know what that word means because it shows up again in verse 18 as it relates to servants. It shows up in chapter three and verse one as it relates to wives. And what's more, the word and the idea of submissiveness is found all over the New Testament. A few examples. Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents in Luke chapter two. The disciples rejoiced that the demons submitted to them in Luke chapter 10. Paul commands that we're submissive to the government because it possesses authority from God in Romans 13 verse one. In fact, part of the victory that Christ has gained is that all of the world, the whole created order, will be submissive to him, and at the same time, he's submissive to the Father's will in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. What's more, the church is commanded to be submissive to Christ in Ephesians 5, and all believers are commanded to be submissive to one another in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. So what do I mean by the word submission, or submissive, or to be subject? Here's my definition. I think what this means is this, normative, willing obedience. Each of those words are really important. The the word essentially means obedience. But it's not just about obedience, like you do what you're supposed to do with a really bad attitude. It means that there's a willing obedience. It's not just enough to have the right attitude either. You actually gotta do what you're being asked to, to do. So your respect needs to show up in action. And then also I'm adding the word normative because, as you'll see, there are some exceptions. There are times when the willing obedience is eclipsed by other biblical convictions and priorities. But the general tone, the general demeanor, the posture, if you will, of Christian exiles is to be marked by an attitude of respect, an attitude of honor, and then actions that, that, that follow, actions that fit with this sort of heart orientation. 
This is in contrast to those who would be sort of passive aggressive, where they appear compliant, but internally they are begrudging and they are not really on board. Or you have those who have compliance, but it is begrudging and have a kind of negative or complaining spirit. So to to, to be submissive means that there's an attitudinal bent of your heart, which is not towards resistance, but instead is toward respect. That, That the perspective that you come into situations with is not one of rebellion or prove to me why I should listen to you or convince me that I should obey you, but rather one of willful obedience. That the bias of my life is to say, yes, I'm willing to follow you. And also, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to do joyfully what is asked of me. Now, this this word has implications in many different areas and lots of different contexts. The believer's life is to be marked by this tone in many, many different ways. And so, some of you would understandably ask, now, are are there no exceptions to this? And of course there are. There are moments when what Peter is talking about here, while true, have to be eclipsed by other dynamics that require disobedience. And that's why normative willing obedience is how I'm defining this. So this command in 1 Peter chapter 2 does not rule out moments when civil disobedience or a concern for justice when authority is abused is important to address Yet this text is very clear that the normative pattern of a believer's life needs to be where there is a disposition towards submission. So before I jump in any further, this is just a good place for you to take some time for some quick personal inventory. So let me ask you, when it comes to authority figures or institutions in your life, do you have a posture of submission or is your posture towards resistance? I mean, come on, let's be honest. There's some of you who are, you're in a 50-year-old body, but there's really a 13-year-old kid in there with a chip on his shoulder, right? You, you never got over your authority issues as a teenager, and you just found ways to hide them, and there's ways that you do it that are really creative and really sneaky. There's others of you who are outwardly compliant, and oh, you're following the party line, but get you in the staff break room, and someone throws you a little bit of an emotional, relational softball about those in leadership or this policy thing, and man, you run, and you put really nice things on it, like, I'm not divisive, I don't want to be divisive or anything, oh, I'm, 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 I love this company, or I'm, I pray for the government, I pray for our president, but I'm just saying, and you kind of run down this line. And so you know how to put it in Christian lingo, but somewhere underneath, there, if you're honest, there's this, there's this press of authority. Or somebody asks you to do something, and, and you tell them that you're going to do it, but just so that they know that they're not fully in control of you, you just do it a little later than what they asked. You just wait a little longer to respond to the email just because you want them to know. You're my boss, but I'm still in charge. So, so think of how this then applies in the various facets of our life. There's this issue of authority that's underneath this, and not just biblical authority as a concept, but even God's authority, which is why verse 13 says this, be subject for the Lord's sake. So it's interesting here that Peter connects their their normative, willing, obedient posture, not, notice, to the worthiness of the person 
or even the worthiness of the institution. Instead, he connects their obedience to their view of God. Since God has established divine authority and earthly authority, Romans 13, since their good behavior says something about God himself, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, then Christian exiles are to have a mindset that their normative willing obedience is, is not simply because of what they've been asked to do or because of the institution that they're receiving this instruction or these requests from, but rather because it says something about God. And so they, they live with God in mind. Then look at what else happens in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So what Peter does is he positions for the Lord's sake and the word human. Lest you would think, hey, I'm a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood, I serve God. These human institutions, they're nothing. They're not even real. Your idea of taxes, the IRS, the homeowners association, you people don't have any power over me. I just live in the neighborhood. Like, you're not God. I know who my king is. You can realize how this Christian mindset, man, you press this too far. You, you, you start developing a Christian chip on your shoulder, and you will gut your witness. And what Peter's concerned about here is that how you respond to authority says something about what you think about God and the gospel. And so he, he, he extends it, and he says, whether to the emperor as supreme— or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. So he extends the application of it not only to the, the emperor in Rome, but also to provincial leaders in various areas where Rome had extended its dominion. And by the way, the, one, the emperor who's sitting on the throne at this point in time is Nero, who's not a model man. He's known for all kinds of debauchery, ordered executions, even some within his own family known for financial mismanagement. In fact, there was a campaign to persecute Christians after someone burned a large section of Rome. Some people think it was Nero himself. And so he blamed it on Christians. And what's more, church history tells us that Peter was executed and it was during the reign of Nero, somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. So when Peter talks about the emperor, we gotta understand who we're talking about here. What's more, the, the, the style of Roman dominance meant that oftentimes, depending on which province they were in, some kind of emperor worship would have been part of the expectation. In some provinces, there were, was more pressure than others, and some provincial governors were more corrupt than others. But the fact of the matter is, is Peter's dropping this honor the emperor and be subjected to him and be submissive to him into an environment that had a lot of pressure connected with it. So our model of government, even with all its shortcomings, is worlds apart from the Roman context and its surrounding regions. And so therefore, I would tell you, if Peter gives this command regarding Nero, it certainly has wide application in our day as well. God desires for respectful obedience to be given to those who frankly don't deserve it. And verse 15 tells us why. He says, because it's God's will. God's will that doing what? That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The idea is that by doing good, that when, when there are charges that come against you as a Christian, that other people would be able to realize, wait a minute, 
These are good, honorable, and respectful people. Like they're, they're good citizens. They're not anarchists. They're not, they're not trying, they don't have a chip on their shoulder that you could, in effect, potentially put to silence those who lob ignorant charges about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The idea is, is, is storing and building up grace because of our desire to be honorable. What's more, verse 16 says, live as people who are free, meaning live as people who understand their spiritual freedom. Understand that, that true, Nero is not God. Rome is not the end-all, be-all power in the universe. Yes, it is true. We have a king who conquered death. Rome could brag about their ability to conquer nations, but no emperor could say, I beat death. Our king has, and yet we're to live in light of that beautiful freedom, and yet he says this, yet don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we're not to use the freedom that we have in this beautiful relationship that we have with Christ to then justify disrespect or violence or some kind of anarchist ideology. True, Christ is our king, and yet we should live like Christ in regards to how we respond to earthly authority. Instead, a summary statement, we are to honor everyone, we are to love the brotherhood, we are to fear God, we are to honor the emperor. So our normative position in life should be willing obedience, that when the government asks for obedience, and whether it's from your emperor, or whether it's from your state legislature, whether it's from your city council, or whether it's from your HOA, your answer ought to be, of course. Normative pattern. Now, yes, there are exceptions to this rule. The government, according to this text, has a God-given responsibility to carry out what is just and fair. The text even says it when it says, governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good. So when the government violates that principle, when the government asks you to do something that is either immoral or wrong, there are times when Government or governors overstep their God-given authority. So this text is not advocating some kind of mindless, robotic obedience. In fact, let me say this. If God's placed you in a position where you're in the public square, a career that Christians ought to be involved in, and you have opportunity to influence a a man-made institution, particularly a man-made institution of government, and if you have the ability to, to speak into that environment, you ought to do so and be able to advocate for the relief of injustice. We ought to fulfill the calling of Isaiah chapter one which says to seek justice and correct oppression. You ought to find ways to integrate biblical principles as best you can in your area of influence. And at times, you ought to be prepared to speak to those in power and protest to those in power when they are wrong as Nathan did to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But when you do that, the way in which you do it is extremely important. This text forbids the kind of attitudes and actions that simply do not fit with the model of Christ-likeness, that being a follower of Jesus means, yes, Jesus indeed is my king, but living that out doesn't create social chaos. No, rather, it means responding in a manner in which we both honor God and we honor those who are in authority. So our normative proposition 
And the way in which Christianity prospers as an exile is to figure out what does it mean to glorify God by being normatively willing, obedient to those in authority. Look, we, we just had some child dedications. Parents, can I just speak to you personally a minute? Listen, your attitude will be picked up by your children very easily. Grandparents, same thing. Same thing, you, you, you speak in a way, in a tone about the government or some person, L- listen, your kids pick up on that and, and they will mimic and, and, and in some cases even potentially take it even further than you do because it's all, sort of like as an adult, you sort of open the door and give them lots of permission to take it even further. Back in college, I, was, um, I worked at a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and I remember one day a, a, a mom and a young child, actually not that young, maybe seven years old, came in and they were checking out some books, and there were some point of sale things up front, you know, those times that you put out products, hope you'll buy them, put them low enough so kids whine about them. And so we, you know, he was there, and he started whining. He was like, Mom, can I have this? And she was like, no. And then he was like, how come I can't have it? I want this. It's so unfair. And I'm behind the counter going, oh, here's the parenting book. You know, like, come on, please, like, like help him out. I mean, I wanted to tell him, hey, you know, seriously, like this hurts. Like be quiet, it's wrong, you know. And I was like, what's going on? That's weird. Like it was just, it was way over the top, right? So they checked out everything else. And the dad came in from outside in the car and he comes in and he says, what's taking so long? I've been waiting out in the car for the last 15 minutes. I can't believe how long it's taking. I was like, got it, right there, see it, got it. Got it. Yeah. So be careful. What you talk about in your, around your dinner table, how you watch the news and what you say, how you read the newspaper, what happens in the context of your car. Listen, um, cries of protest, if you're not my boss, that doesn't stop on the playground, that shows up. Because authority isn't a child issue, it's a human issue. And as it relates to being a Christian exile, we've gotta realize that we're called to be obedient even to human institutions. Secondly, The text says that we are to work and to do so in a way where we reflect being obedient to every employer, even to those who are unfair. So he says, servants, be subject to your masters. In a moment, I'll apply this fully to the employment situation, but let me just acknowledge something from the very beginning. This word servant, other translations render it as slaves, and we just gotta acknowledge that you you might read this and go, my word, does... Does the Bible then advocate slavery? And in light of our nation's just terrible history on this particular issue, what do we do do with that? A couple things. First, the word servant here means household servant. When Peter was writing, slavery in the New Testament was quite different than the slavery in our nation's history. In fact, slaves were normally paid by their masters, There were Roman laws governing the treatment of slaves. Many of them, in fact, were managers, skilled professions, even professionals, even doctors, teachers, and artisans. At the same time, you need to know that slaves in the New Testament, they weren't voluntary slaves. If your family was over in debt, one of the solutions to that would be to sell yourself into into slavery. Additionally, some people were part of conquered lands, and as a part of that conquering, some of them were then brought into a lower class system. And then children were born into that, and those sort of social structures presented challenges. So their legal status, their social standing, their their opportunity for economic growth and independence were 
were lower, admittedly, than others within Roman society. So while it's not the same, I don't want to make light of it either, like, like it was fair or right. So what you need to know is that Peter is not speaking into the total reality of this social structure, but rather what he's doing is trying to help them realize what sort of attitude do you have when your culture has systemic problems in it. So the Bible does not condone sinful, immoral, or inhumane treatment of other human beings. Instead, what is happening here is he's trying to help them know how to navigate attitudinally the culture in which they live. So you might say, well, Mark, what would you say to a slave in the New Testament? Here's what I would say. Be respectful, be honorable, and do whatever you can to be free. If you can buy your freedom, buy it. If you, any way for you to secure it, secure it. Advocate for it, pray for it, and if you have the opportunity to change unjust laws, oh, by all means, do so. You see, friends, this was part of the brilliance of the civil rights movement, the challenge of the conscience of the nation by nonviolent protest, by the willingness to suffer at the hands of other people. So, I think the clearest application of this text for our own context is that of an employer-employee relationship. Peter is pressing against the natural tendency for us to be willingly obedient to bosses as long as they're kind and fair and reasonable. Some of you think, oh, man, I'll follow anybody as long as they're a good person. I'll, I'll, I'll do things exactly like she wants as long as she's fair. And certainly we should follow good and fair people. In fact, if, you, if you're a Christian boss, there, there's an obligation for you to understand what this text is saying. It says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle. So here's the thing. If you're a Christian boss, brother or sister, you need to be good and gentle. You need to be the kind of person that creates a flourishing environment, the, the kind of things that your employees are like, man, I've loved working for this person. They were firm, they were fair, they were good, they were gentle. They realized that your Christianity and your role as a manager, those things go together. You don't separate those two things. In fact, if I show up at your work and I introduce myself, say, hey, I'm, I'm John's pastor. I mean, it better not be that they're like, really? <laughs> it better not be like, it's awkward at that moment. Like, like what? You, like, you go to church? Like, I, huh. And that, that's, can we all agree, that's not a good scenario, right? So you better watch out. I'm going to show up at some of your offices this week, right? <laughs> what Peter is arguing is that there, there needs to be an understanding of what it means to be a person who's under authority. Human beings are not normally inclined to be willingly submissive to those who are not gentle or who are unkind, and yet he suggests that we ought to. He says, be subject to your masters with all respect, and not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. In other words, there's something unusual that happens when you are respectful to those who don't deserve it. From a human perspective, it platforms something really remarkable. So some of you have been given a gift. You have a really bad boss. And the reason that person is in your life is to increase your sanctification, and secondly, to show everybody in your office how different it is that you're a follower of Jesus. And if you go into that lunchroom and you start talking like everybody else about the leadership and da, 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 the policies and everything else, you will simply go right along the line with every other stream of culture. And friend, you will end up negating the opportunity that exists. Maybe God put a hard boss in your life because he wants you to be able to open your mouth about the beauty of the gospel. 
And when you open your mouth about the beauty of the gospel, you better be sure you are respectful and honoring even to those who are not kind. Verse 19 says we're to be mindful of God. It says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The idea is that you do this not because the the boss deserves it. That's not even in play. The question is, I'm thinking about God. I'm thinking about my walk with Jesus. I'm thinking about my king is in heaven, so I can deal with unjust treatment. We'll talk about that next week. How do you endure unfairness at the hands of other people? But then he goes on. Peter knows people so well. He says, verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, you leave the parking lot today and you start speeding down 96th Street and a police officer pulls you over. You ought not be posted on Facebook, persecuted by Carmel police today. (laughs) You got a ticket because you deserved it. Let me push it a little bit further. You get a bad review from your boss because you're not working hard enough. You're not showing up on time. You don't know your material. You're not studying. You're not reading the things in advance. You come to meetings unprepared. You don't deliver by your deadlines. And you get a bad review. Don't you dare say I'm being persecuted. Bro, that's on you. You got to do your job. You gotta be good at what you do. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, you gotta be better because there's a stewardship in you in terms of how you use your gifts and use your abilities. You're trying to do things as unto Christ. So don't be leaving some kind of lame work product on someone's desk thinking, well, that's good enough. And then when they push on it, say, I'm being persecuted. Look, that's, that's on you. And don't think that if you spout off your mouth and, and, and there's pushback because you're disrespectful that Somehow you run down the road of I'm being persecuted because I'm being honest or I'm just speaking my mind or I'm representing these, 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 these people. You have a responsibility to think through what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to be able to be an employee. Now again, let me say this. It doesn't mean you can never make an appeal to your boss. It doesn't mean that you, you can't go to your HR department when something isn't right. It doesn't mean that you, you, you can never be a whistleblower. If you're asked to do something unethical, illegal, or something that violates your conscience, look, you have an ethical responsibility to do what's right, and you have a responsibility to do it in the right way. That's the point. As you make your way through that process, think carefully through what it looks like to do it in a way that fits with being a Christian exile. So Peter isn't dealing with all the possibilities of what could happen and what does it mean to live in their culture. What he's trying to do them is to give them some overarching ideas about what it means to live as a Christian exile. And I'm telling you, you know this very well, every single day your testimony is on the line. If you're a follower of Jesus, every single day there's an opportunity for you to demonstrate, do I really believe that Jesus is king? And if I do, then therefore I'm gonna respond in a way that fits with Christ as king. When I was in high school and then into college, I worked at a rental company. We rented tables and chairs and did small engine um, repair stuff and things of that sort. The guy I worked with was, was, or for rather, was not a believer. It was a very hard job. It, it, it reminded me why I was in college, so that I didn't have this job. I think every college student needs to have one of those jobs in their life. One day I, I asked him, and I knew that a family member of his was working that summer, and somehow, he accidentally told me what he was making, and it was way beyond what I was making. I had been there three years. And so I met with him, and without using this as a reference point, I just said, hey, I've been working for you three years. I've not had an increase. Is there any way that we could talk about just a small increase? And he said, no, we can't. I was like, okay. Well, thanks uh, for listening, and I walked out. Two days later, he comes back, and he says, hey, you know what? I've been thinking about that. 
and I'm going to go ahead and, and, and give you a raise. And I was like, wow, thank you, so appreciative. So that situation, that went really well. There's another situation that didn't. This guy was kind of a, a manic, depressive sort of guy, so you never knew when he was going to blow up. And um, I'd endured a lot. And there was one day when he was riding me about why something wasn't done a particular way, and I, I, I had had it. And I snapped, and I got in his grill, and I pushed back, and even said something like, you have no right to treat me this way, da 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 and I made all kinds of statements everything else. And as I, these words are flying out of my mouth, which at one level felt so good for a little second, and he looked at me, he didn't say anything, he just smirked and grinned. And the look on his face essentially was this, I gotcha, Christian. As he walked away, I thought, I know better. I know better. And tried for the rest of my time while I was an employee there to be sure I didn't go down that trap again. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've blown it before. You've gone down that path. And can you just maybe acknowledge the reality of those potential temptations and yet also to know that God's placed you in a situation when you have an unbelievable opportunity to confess that Christ is king and therefore you can be gracious. That, that, that when something isn't done right, there's a way to handle it, and if something's wrong, you can address it. But to be sure that as you do it, that you're not doing it like everyone else. Can we just acknowledge that in the midst of our culture, the, the dividing lines of the divisions within our society are getting deeper. The, the conversations between different camps are getting more raucous, and it's popular just to say whatever you want or go on some Facebook rant or post something on Twitter, or just kind of do some nasty riff. And in the midst of that, here are Christian exiles who are called to engage their culture and engage their world, but to do it in a way that honors Jesus. So let me just ask you to take some personal inventory this morning in three particular areas. First, in regards to theological categories. When you think about God and who he is, does it affect how you talk and how you think about the government? Is there a connection, is there a connection between your view of God and a local city ordinance, or a school board, or whatever. When you think of human institutions, is this a connection between God's authority and these particular dynamics? Or do you have a 13-year-old kid chip on your shoulder, and you're just like, the IRS isn't even real. Just something we made up. Taxes, it's way beyond what we should. You could go to some passage in Old Testament. It's not even biblical to pay this much taxes. You're on and on and on and on and on. I've had all sorts of, of reasons of all of, your, all of your protests or some other thing that you've you're, you're, you're got some kind of angst about. And I want you to realize this morning that your understanding of who God is and your understanding of human authority and human institutions, those things are, those things are linked together. Some of you have really difficult people in authority over you. Brother and sister, you need to go to the Word to reset your mind because you're walking into a, a thing where you gotta think Christianly and think Christianly and think Christ-like. And I know that at the end of the day, sometimes you're exhausted, and I hope today you're encouraged to keep thinking Christianly in where you live. Some of you are in the middle of a really tough situation right now where you're being asked to try and do something you're just not comfortable with, and how do you deal with that? That's, that's where the brothers and sisters of Christ can come alongside and help you and support you and pray with you. As it relates to attitude, can we just... Do a little gut check on this as it relates to this matter of, of authority. Do you still have a chip on your shoulder? Well, you've grown up from your teenage years, but that little 14-year-old is still there. There's a consultant that we use sometimes, and he talks about cave dwellers. 
people who are consistently against virtually everything, right? <laughs> Any cave dwellers here? I wonder if I was to ask your, your boss, are you the kind of person that everybody has to kind of build their conversation around? They're thinking, eh, we gotta tell John about this, and let's just, uh. and you're like, I don't know, how's this gonna go down? And they like got you know, security in their back pocket in case this doesn't go well, or people who just found other ways, or their email's gotta be worded just perfectly, or they know you're gonna, and there's this attitude piece that people around you know. Some of you may know that coming Monday, you gotta walk into your boss's office and go, look, I've had a horrible attitude. And I'll guarantee you, your boss is not going to go, really? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. And they're going to be grateful. And you actually might have the opportunity to identify, look, I need to be a better employee. And then finally, how about relates to action? Are there things in your life that simply you need to realize, look, I've got to translate this, not just from an attitude. Like, I've got to bring in new words. I've got to bring in a new tone. I've got to think differently about how I send these text messages. I've got to, I've got to send email messages differently. Do you, do you consistently find ways to do what's right? Do you consistently find ways to walk in humility? Because, church, our culture is so filled with self-centeredness and backstabbing and a lack of concern for others and deep divisions. This is a hard time to live, and yet it's a beautiful time to be a follower of Jesus because you can platform the power of what it means for Christ to have changed your life. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know this gospel, this thing that has saved us from our sins, so transforms our understanding that yes, it affects how we think about the government and how it affects how we think about our employer. And we'd love to talk with you more about what it means to have your heart cleansed so deeply that you look at everything differently. You know, friends, at the end of the day, it's not just children who say, you're, my, you're not my boss. It's not just kids who say, that's not fair. But adults, we, we, we can do the same thing. And Peter's call is for exiles who honor God by honoring authority and honor God by honoring their employer, whose heart and mantra is this, honor everyone, honor the emperor, fear God, and love the brotherhood. And that's how you live as an exile in a really raucous world. Let's pray together. Lord, I could only imagine there's some people in this uh, room who are in the middle of some tough stuff at work or have some family dynamics where it's real easy to go down this path. And we just want to, right now, just repent of a really bad attitude about things. Uh, we acknowledge our need for your grace. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as they leave today that there would be a, a sense uh, tomorrow morning of, Lord, I'm, I need to put on a different mindset. I need to put on a different heart have a different perspective of what it means to be a, a follower of you. So we thank you for this text, we thank you for your word, and we, we ask for the application of it to be something that, um, Lord, translates into real attitude and real action change. Make our time in the word sweet so we could have right thoughts about you moving forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.